Today's sermon text comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. This is verses 21 through 28, and I'd invite the congregation to stand for the reading of the word. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. God, such is the words of men that see your glory, God, and we, we just need a taste of it, God. And this can only happen through your revelation, God. It can't happen through us endeavoring to find You, God, but it can only happen when You come down and reveal Yourself, God. So we ask that You would do that in this time. Would You tear our hearts open and expose our sin and let us find hope in Your Son. God, could You do that during this time? Amen. First Impressions even if they are accurate, they never tell the whole story. For example, my Uncle Fred is this gregarious individual. Even if you're sitting down and facing this way, he walks in the room and you know it. And he's he was the epitome. He's who you wanted to be when you're growing up. So when you're, you'd be out there playing football with myself and my cousins and you're having a great time and he'd take us in his truck and we'd go riding through the fields in the mud. And it was this great Time, any time you're with Uncle Fred, you're having a good time. That's when you're young. And then, as you get a little bit older, you learn that Uncle Fred was not just Uncle Fred. Uncle Fred was a war veteran. Not just a war veteran. Uncle Fred was a Marine scout and sniper. Uncle Fred, this man who you would play with and ride around with and have a great time with, was a man who had... Dozens and dozens and dozens of confirmed kills 
etched into the butt of his gun. The same hands that would pick you up and, and lay you on your lap and tell you on his lap and tell you great stories were the same hands that had choked life out of people. Their first impressions, even if they are accurate, they never tell the full story. And that is what we see here in our text this morning. Who is this Messiah? Well, on first impressions, he's this Messiah you go with, and he's upholding the, the weak and the, and the gentle. And he's feeding the 5,000, he's feeding the 4,000, he has Peter walking on water. And up till now, you have had a little bit of pushback from the religious elites. But now, seemingly out of nowhere, you see this revelation of this greater picture of what it means to be the Messiah. And that's where we're going to be driving through our text today that Justin had read for us. We're going to wrestle through this text and you're going to see that the suffering shepherd leads his sheep along the same path. This suffering Messiah, how do you reconcile it all in one person? This uncle of yours who's who plays with you is also the same uncle that had fought through war. Same thing with the Messiah. How do you reconcile a Messiah who feeds the 5,000, feeds the 4,000, leads Peter to walk on water? How do you reconcile that with the Messiah who is suffering, the one who is exalted upon the cross, high and lifted up? How do you reconcile those two things? The centers around suffering. That's the hinge point about, about all of it. So we're, as we look at it, our text this morning, verses 21 through 23, we're going to be looking at the necessity of suffering. Why did it come? Why was it necessary for him to suffer? And then finally, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 28, the glory of suffering. What does it mean as we suffer? What is held before us as we suffer as Christ has suffered? So we're going to be looking at the necessity of suffering and also the glory of suffering. So unashamedly, let's go back to the text. and Read verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen from you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but upon the things of men. And as the story of Christ is unfolding before our eyes as we journey through this Gospel of Matthew we're confronted with two things over and over and over. And it comes up in every sermon that we've been preaching. The kingdom and the king. The kingdom and the king. And the kingdom, as we're seeing, it's this upside-down kingdom. And it's nothing that you would expect. We would, we would start with the religious elites or the elites of society. And who does Christ go after? The fishermen. The tax collector who is ripping off the fishermen. And then a bunch of zealots who want to kill the tax collector because he was working with Rome. Perfect group of guys. Let's put them together. And then we want this kingdom that will conquer by force. But what are we seeing? We're seeing a kingdom that advances through love. Servanthood. Not force. An edict. Then we want the strong. That's who we want for our kingdoms. 
But who does Christ say will inherit the earth? The meek. They're the ones who we are upholding in this kingdom. Likewise, for the king, the kingdom and the king. Likewise, for the king, Peter has, we, we, he, Peter has made this profession in verse 16, a little bit up above this. He says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. He says, you are the anointed one, the one that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people have been waiting for ever since Genesis 3. When they have this promise of the Messiah who was to come. And we see here that Christ begins to clarify what does it mean to be the Messiah. And we're in the midst of this, this great turning point in the book. Do you see in verse 21 here it says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples. We're in the midst of this great turning point. Christ is wrapping up his ministry along the Sea of Galilee and he's soon going to be marching south towards Jerusalem. So it says, from that time. And Christ makes clear His role is that He has come to suffer. He has come to suffer. So He, he shows His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be handed over and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And this seemingly comes out of nowhere. If you sit down and read Matthew, just read the whole thing, beginning to end. This comes out of nowhere. It's like a lightning bolt right out in the prairie with no storm. just comes out of nowhere. Sure, there's, there's been a little bit of talk about suffering, but nothing about a cross. No, 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 no. Crosses, that's where rebellions end. Is that the cross? That's where Romans end rebellions. That's not the place you begin a kingdom. That's not where kingdoms are established. And having that in mind helps us understand what Peter is pressing back on the Lord here. Do you see his response? He said, he wants the conquering king, but he wants nothing to do with the cross. Yes, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the conquering Messiah. And that's true, but Christ is not conquering anything of this world. Christ is conquering death itself. Thus, he cannot abide by Peter's expectations, any of our expectations that you would expect as well. And he thunders down Get behind me, Satan. Quite bold. Because there must be nothing, no hindrance between Christ and the cross. There must nothing be nothing separating the Son of God and His mission. There must be no separation between the King and His kingdom. If you are, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your, hands, your eyes on the things not of God, but on the things of man. It says if Peter, he's, he's walking on the water all over again. Remember when Peter is walking on the water. And he begins to sink. And why does he begin to sink? Where are his eyes fixed? First chapter 14, verse 30, it says, But seeing the wind, not seeing Christ, but seeing the wind, seeing the storm, seeing the waves, seeing the wind, he began frightened. And he took his eyes off Christ. And how easy is it for you sitting here? To take your eyes off Christ. To see what is surrounding you and only be fixated upon that and that alone. Likewise here, Peter has his, his mind set on the things of man, not upon the things of God. And all of this is happening against the backdrop of a, of a shame and honor culture. Of a shame and honor culture. One of strengthness, strength and one of weakness. 
So to suffer is to have shame, and to have shame is to be weak. And well, a weak king is no king at all, quite frankly. That's what Peter's thinking. The righteous one cannot suffer, but he must. And this, this should be no surprise. Look back in Genesis. Who are the righteous ones? Well, you, then you'll see the ones that are suffering. Abel, the righteous one, whose offering was accepted by God, is killed by Cain because he is righteous. Joseph, fleeing from Potiphar's wife, he is the righteous one. Thus he suffers. Look at Job. He suffered specifically because he was righteous. Prophet Jeremiah, suffering because he's a righteous man, bringing forth the Word of God. It's in that same line that we have our Messiah, the righteous one, making very clear what his intentions are here. You see it in not only in this chapter, but in verse chapter 17, at the end of the Transfiguration, he has the same proclamation. And then chapter 20, right before the triumphal entry. He makes it very clear that this and this alone is his intention. That the Son of Man must come and he must suffer and that he must die and that he would, he'll be crucified but he'll be raised again on the third day. But why is this necessary? Why is this necessary? Well, when you see that the enemy is sin and death, there's only one way to conquer. And that is through death. The the kingdom of righteousness cannot be fully established until sin is abolished and put away, until sin is defeated. Thus, in Hebrews 9, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. All of that is pointing towards Christ, the one whose blood would be shed for you and for you and for you, if you believe. So don't you see that even within you, the sin within you that demands your death. Go back to Genesis. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, surely you will die. A death you will die, it says. Very emphatic. And thus, we've all died. We'll die. The curse is the same. But our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. So Christ has come to drink this wrath of God. That was your cup to drink. Christ has come to die the death that you were supposed to die. And Christ has come that in His resurrection, you too might be made alive together with Christ and be raised again with Christ. So I hope you're able to see this necessity of suffering in these verses here, 21 through 23. And Christianity, this is very unique to Christianity. No other religion has as its, as its core, as the climax of it all, suffering and humiliation. They may talk about it. They might try to explain it away. But they don't exalt it the way that Christians do. And this is necessary because this necessary suffering It's beautiful because it means that suffering is not without purpose. Or to get rid of the double negatives, suffering has a a purpose. Especially because we worship a sovereign God who is over it all. 
So Jesus Christ suffered, but he suffered to redeem his people. He endured the cross, but he did it to purify his people. In Hebrews 2 it says, He himself likewise took took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy. It was necessary. That through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He suffered to eliminate suffering, and He came and He he died to kill death. This is beautiful, even in our own lives, when we see that Christ is suffering and there's purpose, so you, when you're suffering, you see that it has a purpose as well. To take that a step further, I would say what a blessing then it is to suffer when you see the purpose behind it. That in the deepest way, through God's grace, you are becoming more like Christ. How? Through suffering. That's why you you see Paul in Philippians. He wants to have the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. So in your in your brokenness and in your loneliness, you're like Christ who was abandoned. In your in your depression, in your spiritual depression, you're like Christ who's there crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the turmoil of your family, when it seems to just scatter and you're doing your best just to gather them, but they scatter out again, you're like Christ, whose own disciples scatter. As soon as they could. These sufferings draw you and lift your eyes to Christ on the cross. The one who has suffered. Thus there is no shame in suffering. It does reveal your weakness. That is true. But as you walk along this path, you'll be displaying the strength of God and the glory of God in the midst of this Suffering. So, then what do you what do you do? All right, what do you do? Patiently, slowly walk through your suffering. Don't run away. Don't flee. Patiently walk through the suffering with your eyes fixated upon the Messiah, the one who has suffered. And as you walk along this path, you'll be revealing to yourself and to God and to others the glory of God and the strength of God as He is working through you in the midst of your suffering. And in the weakness, you are fulfilling the purpose of your suffering. And that is to become more like Christ, the one who has suffered. So we've we've seen this necessity of suffering. Why He came. Because of our own sin, you deserve death. I deserve death. We all deserve death. Thus it was necessary for Christ to come and to suffer. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus we don't look to our own blood, but we look to the one who has truly shed His blood for all of His people, and that is Christ and Christ alone. So it was necessary for Him to come. And in His suffering, we see this purpose thus in our own Suffering in our own loneliness and our own spiritual depression and despair, wherever God may have us, 
we see purpose behind it as well, that we might become more like Christ. So now we're going to be looking and slowly, quickly looking at this glory of, of suffering. So let, let's go back to the text here, verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, truly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they have seen the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now what the Lord is holding again before us in this upside-down kingdom is, is quite astounding. To follow a king should bring you into his court, right? To a position of power and influence, a position of wealth. You can take care of your children, take care of your grandchildren. But no, what do you see here? You follow this king. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Oh, no, no, no. This, to follow Christ, to follow the king of this kingdom of heaven, coming down, to follow him is to follow in this path of suffering. And of course, the choice is rather clear here. When you, when you see the implications... So if you want to save your life, what are you going to do? In the end, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life, ah, but then you find it. The choice is clear here. And the focus on this this temporal things of this world, as we focus upon them, inevitably they, they draw us away from God. So God is He's blessed us with things, sure, but they're never to be a distraction from God Himself. So the businessman who's cheating his employees and putting aside money. Sure, he can, he can have good margins, but he can't have God. It's not just him. The woman seeking the things of this world through relationships. Sure, she can have that. He can have that. But he can't have God. These temporal things of God to be a blessing when we remember that our eyes, remember through the midst of all this suffering, our eyes are to be continually fixated upon Christ and His cross. It is then that you walk right behind Him and you, you pick up the cross that He has laid down. And you follow Him because you know the purpose of all of this is, is to not have a life free of suffering. No, no, no. That's not the purpose. It's to not have a, a comfortable job that's stable. It's to have a home full of children. That is not the purpose. We, as God's people, are seeking, you should be seeking to become more like Christ. That should be your aim. And whatever you have to give away, whatever you have to put aside to become more like Christ, oh, all the much more you have become like Christ. So you don't put it aside to look good. No, you put it aside to fixate your eyes upon Christ. That is your aim. That is your aim. You have to remain single, that's fine. You're going to fix your eyes upon Christ. Financial ruin, that's fine. You're going to fix your eyes upon Christ. 
You're not going to rise through the ranks of male. That's fine. Fix your eyes upon Christ and behold His beauty. That is your, that is your aim. So what does this look like? When, when we think of this, it's so easy to think of like state-sanctioned persecution and we pick taking up our cross. So we, we think of Nero burning Christians in his gardens just for sport, to have light as he entertained. Or the Nazis in their internment camps. Or even now, at this moment, communist China persecuting your brothers, your sisters. That's what we think of, but I would say that this taking up of your cross, it happens in every instance of suffering, provided that it is done well. So to shed some light on this, you can look at 1 Peter 4. In verse 12 it says, Do not be surprised at the fire of trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in the Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, so admittedly, the original context, what Peter is writing to, we were looking at 1 Peter 4, is this external persecution. But I would say that it it applies to this internal suffering as well because there's one question and it both has to be answered by both camps. Is this suffering going to draw me to Christ? The one who's being burned at the stake has to answer the same question as the one whose spouse has left him and they're alone and abandoned. Is this suffering going to draw me Christ. So, in the midst of all of this, in your season of suffering that you're walking through, in the midst of your depression, your spiritual depression, what do you do? You you fix your eyes upon Christ and Christ alone as, as you long for a spouse that God has not given to you. What do you do? You fix your eyes upon Christ and Christ alone as you suffer through cancer and your body is wasting away. What do you do? Well, you go talk to Sean for But you also, you fix your eyes upon Christ that you might become more like Him. So sure, if you're... Health goes aside. That's fine if you can become more like Christ. Therefore, Peter commends them. We go down to verse 19 of 1 Peter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer, and how do they suffer? According to God's will. Is there suffering outside of God's will? Certainly not. Is there a blade of grass that is not has been turned by the wind and the snow that God has not ordained? Certainly not. No, your suffering is according to God's will. So what do you do? You entrust your souls to a faithful Creator. He is faithful. Entrust your souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So we entrust our souls to this faithful Creator. For, it's going back to Matthew Going back to Matthew, for we know that the Son of Man is going to come again, and there is going to be glory to behold. Verse 27, he says, for the back in Matthew again, 
For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. And so there is a glory awaiting those who set aside everything. Set aside your life and your suffering. Your, the, the troubles of your family and your children. The turmoil that is continually there at work. And fixate your eyes upon Christ. There is a glory out there awaiting. So what do you want? Do you want to deny yourself or do you want to deny Christ? Do you want to carry yourself along in and of your own strength or do you want to carry the cross Carry the cross of Christ. You want comfort, my friend? Go ahead and seek. It won't last long. You can have comfort or you can have the glory of God when His Son returns with His angels. And this path of becoming more like Christ, it will meander through valleys. Valleys of suffering and you under the shades and large trees and the shades of depression and will bring you then out to the scorching heat of persecution. That is the path as we walk behind our Messiah. You guys know that. But this final and eternal home that is awaiting us is with our Heavenly Father. What a glorious thing. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And when you begin to shift your eyes past the muck and the mire in which you find yourselves, in which we find ourselves, as we look past this and fix our eyes upon Christ, as you go through the, the valleys of darkness and the shades of depression and this persecution, it might take you where it will take you, but that's fine as long as your eyes are fixated upon Christ. And that is your goal and that is your desire to become more like Him. When that happens, then we understand that all of this is just light and momentary affliction. As Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. Adam was talking about this today. Light, momentary affliction? Paul, really? Stoned? Shipwrecked? Abandoned? Ah. Whipped? Ah. Light. Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And this is the eternal glory of God that is before us today. Before you today. Because we know that He is coming back. And He will repay each person according to what He has done. Provided that, what? You are found in Christ. You must be found in Christ. All of your suffering is not enough if you don't have Christ. You don't want to be repaid. Look at verse 27. You don't want to be repaid according to what you have done. You deserve death and hell. But you do want to be repaid according to what Christ has done. You do want the glory that He will come in according to His holiness and His perfection. So it is in Christ alone that your sins are forgiven and it is in Christ alone that your sufferings have purpose, my friends. And it is in Christ alone that the glory of God awaits you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we long to be like Your Son. 
It's what we want to pray in front of everybody, but God, so, so often our hearts are fickle and they're hard and we, we get distracted and we get consumed with the things of this world. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to behold your beauty and your glory and your grace, God. There is nothing else that can draw us to your Son and behold him and his beauty and his perfection. That can only happen by your grace, God. So I pray that you would make that happen this week. And we are struggling deeply in our souls, God. I pray that you would revisit us to this text. That we would see your Son high and lifted up. That his suffering was with purpose and his suffering has led to your glory, God. And we know that our suffering too will lead to your glory. I pray that you would sustain us until that time. Amen.